Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. ABMP membership gives massage therapists and body workers exceptional liability insurance, numerous discounts, and great resources to help you thrive, like their ABMP podcast, which is available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. And I'm Till Luca. Even if you're not a member, you can get free access to Massage and Body Work magazine, where Whitney and I are frequent contributors, and special offers for thinking practitioner listeners at abmp.com slash thinking. Hey, Whitney, how you doing there? What's going on? I'm doing mighty fine, sir. It's uh, good to talk with you again. And um, we are doing a second episode, I believe, on some shoulder stuff today. Is that correct? Yes, I'm looking forward to that in celebration of you and me both being part of the shoulder jam. Uh, we thought we would focus on a shoulder. And today we're going to talk about what? What are we going to talk about, Whitney? We're talking about the mysterious mythological world of frozen shoulder. Frozen um, shoulder. And yes, um, what is it? What is it not? Um, how do we figure out what to do about it? How do we deal with it? So, uh, yeah, big uh, dilemmas there uh, with this particular condition. Lots of debates, uh, concerns, and uh, discussions in the literature about what it is and, and how to grapple with this. Uh, challenging conditions. So we're going to we'll dive into that a little bit today. Great. Well, I'm not doing so good at following your outline, so I'm jumping around a little bit, but I want to make sure that I mentioned that there is a handout for today, if you're listening. Please go uh, download the handout from Whitney's site or my site. We'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes, and then we should give a plug to the Shoulder Jam. We'll put links there on our sites as well. It's coming up in May, if you're listening to this soon after we broadcast, or it's going to be available by recording too later if you're listening to the recorded yep. version later. Yeah, and just so that you know what that is, actually it's a uh, it's an online uh, presentation that's going to cover several days with a number of different practitioners, all focusing on shoulder issues. So it's a primary focus on that particular body region with, with lots of good stuff from, from people around the globe that are going to be participating. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they got out on there. Likewise. Check us out. So, Whitney, what is frozen shoulder? Don't a lot of things get called frozen shoulder? What are we talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of those things where it's really difficult to nail down exactly what we're dealing with because, um, you know, when you get a, a common name like this that gets batted around a good bit, a lot of people will have a limitation in their range of motion in their shoulder and say, oh, I've got frozen shoulder, or they'll, somebody will tell them you have frozen shoulder because you have this particular type of uh, range of motion limitation. So yeah. in our last episode, which was um, number 37, we uh, dove deep into subacromial pain and talked about how that may significantly limit motion capability in a lot of different planes of the shoulder, and that's the kind of thing that could be easily mistaken for frozen shoulders. So um, there are some instances where this actually involves um, some anatomical structures, in particular the glenohumeral joint capsule, and we'll dive into that in a bit more uh, detail. Mm -hmm. So sometimes this is a, a problem involving the joint capsule, um, where it's more technically referred to as adhesive capsulitis, which also has its own problems with the name, and we'll talk about that some more. Yeah. Um, 
And then sometimes it's just more of a, a range of motion limitation in some specific um, directions, but very, very painful, very problematic for people um, who are grappling with that. Okay. So you, you find it a useful distinction to think about frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis as its discrete thing. And you're going to share with us how we might be able to tell. And then I'll, and you also will give some ideas for working with that. Sounds good. Yeah, that's the, that's where we're going to head. I do want to make one other uh, distinction here that often is talked about in the descriptions of this condition. And then we'll, uh, we'll vase in uh, sort of... Uh, move into talking about some of the, the characteristics of it in these different phases. But there is often a distinction made between what's called primary frozen shoulder and secondary frozen shoulder. Yes. The primary um, is often what we refer to as idiopathic, meaning we don't have a really good explanation for why it occurs. So this is, seems to just occur out of the blue many times without a particular um, uh, inciting factor or anything that sort of started it off. Um, and uh, the secondary frozen shoulder is one that often occurs as the result of some other type of problem. So for example, after a shoulder surgery or after another shoulder injury where there is, um, you know, maybe let's say you've had a, a chromioclavicular joint injury and you have to keep your shoulder in a sling for a couple months, um, keeping the shoulder in immobility, immobility for long mm -hmm. periods of time. That's secondary to the other injury. You will develop frozen shoulder as a result of that. So that is a, a, a kind of a, a clear, important distinction that we often hear about. So, And it's important um, for me as a therapist because um, I may not always agree with the conventional distinctions between primary and secondary in my way of thinking about it, but I think it's, if I think about quote adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder as its own thing, something just arises on its own without another cause, that actually m makes me think about it differently. It's, and yeah. there is some interesting models or narratives or even evidence that says it's almost more like a disease than an injury often. Yeah, yeah, I find that fascinating. I heard another description of it speaking of it as uh, an underuse syndrome as opposed to an overuse syndrome, which I yeah. thought was an interesting way to re refer to this um, uh, because it often develops because of um, prolonged periods of immobilization or prolonged periods of disuse uh, in that uh, glenohumeral joint. Right. And then if only it was yeah. that simple, if we could pin it down to one thing, it would be a lot clearer. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes it does seem to be underused. There are times, like you yeah. said, that it can be secondary to a period of immobilization or even an injury. And there's a whole bunch of other yeah. things that might play into that that we're going to discuss. Yeah. So historically, from uh, the time that this was first described, there have been some descriptions of this condition involving several different phases of it when yeah. we talk about frozen shoulders. So what are those phases? It's helpful to understand that it doesn't, you know, any given client doesn't always follow these phases. And then there's a, like you have said, Whitney, there's a lot of things that get called frozen shoulder that may not fit this model at all. But classic adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder in that subset of people that we can put there often do seem to follow these three classic phases, with the first one being what's called the freezing phase, which is probably inflammatory, although there's sometimes debate about that, but there's, there's some decent evidence that there's inflammatory factors involved in that. And the pain quality there will be distinctive. It'll be achy, it'll be irritable, but really the key indicator there when you're working with it, with your client or experiencing yourself, is that it will flare up. And that if it gets painful, mm -hmm often the pain will linger, it'll stick around. So that pushing it too hard, doing too much with it, 
or getting a body work, say, that's too aggressive could make the pain worse, and that pain often sticks around. That's a sign that it, this immobilization could be in the freezing or inflammatory stage. And it's, it's probably, none of these phases are fun, but this is often the least fun of the stages because it's really hard to sleep on a shoulder that's that painful and that motion restricted. And it, the sleep is disruption itself doesn't help you uh, deal with that inflammatory process or whatever it is that's causing that pain or feeding into that pain. And then there's also, uh, you know, a lot of disagreement around how long these different phases last. And, and yeah. yeah, everybody says that there's a variety, but then even the, the, there's a lot of variety amongst the variety people give. So that in the sources, <laughs> I, I went back and reviewed before our podcast it could be as short as six weeks for this freezing stage, and but other people say it could be as long as nine months for this freezing yeah. stage. Does that fit with how you think I about it? I noticed that as well. It is, yeah. I noticed the same thing as well, that there's a lot of variability in those time frames. And so for that reason, it's something that we have to kind of take with a bit of a grain of salt. And um, I was also just going to make this one other comment. I assume this doesn't really need to be stated, but um, I think it's worth at least stating again. That note that these three phases have um, descriptors all having to do with things that are thermal related, yeah. freezing, frozen, and thawing. But please do understand there is no thermal component to this condition. Oh. That's just a sort of a metaphorical thing that we're talking about there. So, And then you um, hinted at this, but even when we call it adhesive capsulitis, maybe that's a metaphor more than an actual histological finding. So that we, yeah, we have these yeah. metaphorical ways to talk about it, frozen shoulder, adhesive capsulitis, but we need to suspend for a second our decisions about what might actually be going on there as we go through these, yeah. these descriptors of the phases. So the next yeah. phase after the, quote, freezing phase, that initial inflammatory phase, would be the, quote, frozen stage, where it's often still painful, but mm -hmm. the pain might not linger as long. It can still get irritated or flared up, but it'll typically resolve a lot quicker, which is a signal that the inflammatory processes are starting to resolve some. But often yeah. it'll still be pretty stiff. Sleep can still be difficult, but, but often it'll be getting better. You won't always be woken up every two hours like you can be in the freezing phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And then the timeline that's often given for that is anywhere from four to six months beyond that initial inflammatory stage. And we will be making some distinctions uh, a little bit later on in our discussion here between sort of structural and functional differences uh, in terms of what might be causing this. And some of those can have uh, an impact on how long those stages go and the way in which a person experiences those stages as well. So uh, those uh, are just other variables that get added into the equation that make those things um, hard to pin down, I think. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. So yeah. uh, ready for the third stage? Let's, uh, yes, let's have the third stage. Third stage is the thawing stage. Third and hopefully final stage is the thawing stage where it will be more stiff than painful. There's still movement restriction, say, but it's often getting less and less painful, although there can still be a, you know, certain, a certain level of discomfort for sure. But mm -hmm. the big thing is that there is a sense of improvement. Although, I got to say too, there's an exception there too. This can be a plateau that can go on for... Uh, the classic times given are anywhere from six months to two years, but there is reasonable evidence that a lot of people spend 
uh, an indefinite amount of time here, either in that phase two phase, the frozen painful stage, or in this thawing stage where it's more stiff than painful. But, yeah. But for you know, the, for a good number of people, this is this is a sign that it's drawing to a resolution, at least to a, a major degree, and uh, that's that improving the sleep gets better and things like that, and so. Uh, that those are the three phases: the freezing, frozen, and thawing. And then, in the best of all worlds, you live happily ever after. You're thawed and you're good. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you know, one of the things also that I um, found interesting, I ran across some discussions about this: that these phases, and especially the length of that thawing phase at the end of it, being uh, somewhere around two years. There's been a lot of uh, discussion in the literature saying that frozen shoulder is something that just runs the natural course with most people and will generally resolve within about two years. Yes. And um, one of the other authors that I was reading saying uh, they looked into this and uh, doing sort of a, an overall review of a lot of different studies found that that actually isn't uh, true or isn't consistent yes. in a lot of the different cases. And so like you were just saying a moment ago, this can often go on for a very long period of time, and it's not necessarily going to just naturally dissipate on its own. It may do that in a certain number of people, but that's not something I think we can count on um, happening with them. I think you're talking about Wong, 2017, who said that, yeah, there's this thing we've been telling our patients for years, he's a physiotherapist, that there's a natural yeah. history that it runs its course, that you've got to be patient. And for a good number of people, that's true. But his meta-study, his meta-analysis of different reviews said that actually there's a whole lot of variability and there is a pretty sizable group of people that it doesn't seem to even follow that two-year time cycle that it keeps on being painful for people. But I'll put a reference yeah. to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, good. So um, those are some of the characteristics on those different signs or those uh, different phases of it as well. So we also drilled down and, and uh, got some more specific stats on on who is particularly vulnerable to this because there are some categories of people. And again, I would just want to emphasize this is really helpful information to be pulling out, and the reason, another really good reason why a detailed client history is so important and so valuable, because there are some interesting things that we're going to get into here in just a second, talking about some of the characteristics of who gets this problem, and some of these things won't come up if you don't dig deeply with your inquiry in the history. Uh, so that's that's a good reason to, to look into some of these things and, and um, make sure you're, you're asking those questions to probe deep enough for some of the background factors that might be present with people. So, I'm with you. In spite what of are? Yeah. Well, in spite of the fact that we just said that the timelines are really variable, that is such an important question. How long has this been going on? So at least you can yeah. begin to make your working hypothesis about where they might be in this cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of those... Um, statistical factors of who happens to get this? The, the uh, incidence rate that's often given is somewhere between 1% and 2% of people overall, although there are so many things that are called frozen shoulder, it's a little hard to say. But 1% and 2%, it sounds pretty small, but it's actually, uh, that's a good number of people, you know? That's uh, yeah. 1 in 50, 1 in 100, which means you're going to mm -hmm. you know, probably encounter that, several of those people a year in a, in a medium-sized practice. It tends to be four times more common in females between the age of 50 and 65 than in other group, other populations. Some of those people that have the adhesive capsulitis slash frozen shoulder have a history of surgery for the shoulder. 
And there's a theory that perhaps it was an, a co-infection that happened during the surgery that started the inflammatory reaction or an inflammatory reaction mm -hmm. to the physical trauma itself. Probably there's, yeah. I think there's probably more support for the infection thought now than there is for the mechanical thing. Oh, that varies quite a bit. There's still quite a bit of people that are thinking the mechanical factors are important. But in my own, maybe yeah. I'm just talking about my own thinking. Yeah. I want to also backtrack for just a moment to sure. the one you said before with it being four times more common in females because uh, I've always asked this question and I've been asked this question numerous times by students, like, what is the reason for this? Um, and I, at least in my perusing through the literature, have never been able to find uh, any good explanation for why that is so much more common in females. I don't think we have a really good understanding of it. We just know that that happens to be the case. Yep, I don't know either. Yeah. Anything that you've encountered? Yeah. Okay. No, I don't. But I've I've seen that. If I think back on the people that I think probably had this category of of uh, condition going on, they are maybe all female. The ones that I can think of. So, not to say that men don't get yeah. it. Even if it's four times more likely, that means that there's a lot of guys that deal with this. But uh, yep. yeah, the the classic demographic is female, and they get in that middle age, fifty to sixty five. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned periods of immobilization being a contributor. Uh, Paul Ingram, who does the PainScience.com website, he has a very thorough collection of the research on it, and he does a really good job, as usual, of kind of laying out some of the theories and ideas about it. He, uh, I just got to give him a kudos there, and along with the the caveat that he, you know, he's he's really good at, I think, distinguishing when he's talking about his opinion. And when he's talking about the evidence, but they're both woven in there. And I don't always agree with his opinions, but I love his thoroughness yeah. in his research. He has a theory that uh, injections, either even a vaccination injection, if it does somehow compromise the joint capsule, could introduce skin bacteria and initiate that inflammatory reaction. He says this is conjecture. I have no evidence, but that's an interesting thought. Yeah. You know, I was going to mention this was interesting. I was reading the similar thing of uh, the stuff on, on Paul's site and about the injections. And um, I just got through with my second COVID vaccine two yeah. weeks ago. Yes. Um, and I have developed what feels to me like a capsular restriction, weirdly enough, in my elbow. Um, and when he said that about the injections, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Because what I feel is like I can't straighten my elbow out completely. I get a pull on the anterior side of my forearm. And then when I try to flex it fully, I get a pull on the backside, on the posterior side of my elbow. So it feels like the capsule is restricted in both directions. And it feels deep. It doesn't feel muscular. It really feels like the deep connective tissue in there. And I just thought, wow, I wonder if that's related to the injection because there are so many kind of weird side effects that people there are quite a few from the COVID injections too well yeah. okay since you're your own guinea pig do you think that's mechanical or inflammatory my guess would be it's inflammatory it's, it's a trick something question having to do don't, with don't, inflammatory sorry, inflammatory yeah no i'm with you i'm yeah. with you being inflammatory right, but it, guess. with mechanical correlates yeah. is how i think about it that yeah. it probably mm -hmm. wasn't the mechanical puncture or the injury to the fascia say that caused the stiffening it was probably uh who knows what the mrna itself or who knows somehow a reaction that is yeah well the thing that was weird is yeah i got the shot in my shoulder and it's my elbow that yeah. has the problem so yeah, yeah that's why it seems to be so if we're kind of inflammatory speculate we could say maybe it doesn't even require a puncture of a capsule maybe just an inflammatory reaction somewhere nearby could initiate some yeah. stiffening response i think that's pretty common yeah. in a short term 
But when we yeah. when we get, I'll check with you next episode and see how that's doing. But uh, if it were to go on longer, then we would start to call it a condition and such. But I think there's lots of those kind of yeah. things that happen in reaction to different yeah. things. Yep. So, well, what else we got there? Well, more. This is interesting. The non-dominant arm is more commonly affected. So if you're right-handed, it's more often your left shoulder, and it's usually one-sided condition. But it can definitely affect both sides at once on some people. And then it's interesting, too, that if you've had it in one shoulder, you are more risk of developing it in the second shoulder as well, which also yeah. starts to suggest maybe it's not a mechanical primary cause that's causing the frozen shoulder in those people, at least. It's also, it's, it is a lot more uh, common in conjunction with other systemic diseases, like 12% of people with diabetes get a frozen shoulder at some point. And 30% of people with frozen shoulders slash adhesive capsulitis are diabetic. So 30% of the people that uh, have that condition are diabetic. There's also things like uh, thyroid issues, cardiac disease, Parkinson's, and then a lot of speculation about other chronic low-grade systemic inflammation conditions like metabolic syndromes and other kinds of things like that contributing to uh, people's uh, shoulder symptoms. Yeah. This is one that I find really fascinating. I mean, it's, there's certainly like when you look at all those statistics and, and a number of those things, they're all having something to do with sort of metabolic components. It really, um, uh, this is one that just really makes me ponder what the connection relationship is there and why the glenohumeral joint, you know, why does it go there and not seem to um, affect other joints uh, to the same degree? It's, it's puzzling. Well, yeah, the why, why does it go there is a really good question. And then even maybe more puzzling is why now? I mean, after something like a, an injury that's obvious or after a period of immobilization is obvious, but then there's other times it just seems to happen. Uh, we don't know why. And that actually, um, in my way of thinking, I'm starting to come up with, I'm starting, I, not that there's clear categories, but the when question I think is probably a psychosocial question. The where question mm -hmm. might be the biological question. Sorry to draw distinctions that probably don't belong there. But why now? Yeah. I'm thinking of like there's so many factors, including yeah. uh, a psychological profile that's been done for people with adhesive capsulitis. This is one study. So I don't think this is uh, you know widely accepted. But this is a study that's just published last year. Chiaramonte uh, out of Italy had 76 adhesive capsulitis patients. And they gave them various psychological profile instruments that are pretty well validated. And it seemed like mm -hmm. at least a decently designed study. My first glance at it. Uh, but they had, uh, they showed the pretty clear psychological profile of people with primary uh, adhesive capsulitis, that is people that just arose on its own without an injury or something like that. And they said that there's a prevalence of perfectionism, low levels of novelty seeking, and high levels of harm avoidance in that population, quite significant statistically in that group of people with primary adhesive capsulitis. So I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting. I want to for sure stick in the caution that we don't know what that means. They did, mm -hmm. they did in their study design correct for uh, pain in general. They attempted to correct for that. So it's not like, of course, people in pain are going to have, you know, they're going to avoid novelty. They're going to avoid harm just because they have pain. But their control group had pain too as well. So it's just, it, it, this points to the fact that there are some other probably non-mechanical factors involved, as there are in a lot of inflammatory reac reactions. It's a kind of reactivity yeah. that for sure is metabolic, it is physical, and it probably is psychological. Our psychological immune system 
and maybe even beyond into collective responses too that uh, mm -hmm. might have parallels all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating. Like, like what, what doesn't it reach into? It seems to reach into all of these different things, you know, metabolic yes. things, connective tissue problems. You had mentioned also too the very high correlation with Dupuytren's contracture also, which yeah. is kind of interesting. 50%, I yeah. they say, of people with adhesive capsulitis also have Dupuytren's or Dupuytren's, yeah. which is the stiffening of the palm fascia as well, or cords in the palm of your hand. Yeah. And that's, that suggests yeah. that you, you can make what you will out of that, but it suggests that there is some sort of systemic connective tissue reactivity or perhaps disorder that uh, the, the shoulder joint is a part of. Yeah, yeah. Any other points so, you want to uh, make about who gets it with? Yeah, I think that that covers the majority of things that we want to look at. I also did run across one uh, mention, too, that had said that there was some correlation with obesity, which to me kind of goes into yeah. a lot of these other metabolic factors, I think. So yeah. we're looking at overall things that may re be related to some types of um, systemic metabolic things and lifestyle things that are all factored into Smoking uh, likelihood of developing right. this. That's yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so why, why does it yeah. get stiff? Do we know why? adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder even gets it? Do you know the mechanism? Yeah, so this is one of the, another one of the things that's really kind of puzzling and difficult to, to sort of nail down. But what we do see now is sort of a, a distinction being made between what we refer to as structural causes versus functional causes. So looking at the sort of structural condition first, this is the one that would more characteristically be defined as adhesive capsulitis, where yeah. there is a pathology of some kind with the joint capsule, the glenohumeral joint capsule itself. Now, formerly, there was a lot of narrative around this that described uh, the very fact that when the, when the shoulder is in a neutral position, just because you have such a great range of motion in the shoulder, there's a lot of sort of um, slackness to the underside of the glenohumeral joint capsule when you're in a neutral position so that when you raise your shoulder out in full flexion or in full abduction, mm -hmm. that slackened tissue on the underside becomes taut. But there's got to be enough room for it to move and sort of stretch out and lengthen. So it's got to be kind of, you can envision this as just sort of like a, a fold in it to allow it to come back to a neutral position since it's a, it is a non-contractile tissue. Yep. But the original descriptions often described that we were having a an, an adhesion that was sticking together the fold in that inferior glenohumeral joint capsule. And uh, that's what was causing the restriction in adhesive capsulitis. And some of the more current descriptions that I was running across now are saying, well, we're not seeing so much that that adhesion of the fold as we're seeing something that seems more like a sort of a shrinkage or a... Um, kind of a, a, well, essentially a contracture of mm -hmm. the glenohumeral joint capsule of sort of sort of fibrously contracting uh, to prevent a full range of motion in there. So that seems to be what some of the, the tissue pathology may be associated with in adhesive capsulitis. And I remember some pretty detailed debates about exactly which part of the joint capsule or which part of the, which ligaments were involved. But again, the more yeah. recent sources I went back and reviewed uh, getting ready for our conversation, they're avoiding that. They're saying, well, there's so much variety and there's so much debate that maybe it is a nonspecific contracture of the entire capsule, say, more than a particular ligament. Like classically, you used to say yeah. it's the anterior part of the capsule, say, that would inhibit external rotation. Well, that's true in some people, apparently, but uh, maybe not in everybody. Yeah, yeah. 
So those are some things that we can kind of think about as guidelines. But again, you know, it may, like you said, it may be really somewhat unique among everybody. And some of those things may not, those patterns may not follow through as easily. But uh, so we have this structural one that's the connective tissue problem. And then there's a very large percentage of these people which seem to have what's referred to now as sort of a functional frozen shoulder, which seems to be a lot more of a neurological problem where mm -hmm. there is excessive muscle guarding and muscle restriction so that your joint range of motion is limited significantly, but predominantly by um, neuromuscular involvement. So for example, we mm -hmm. are having um, you know muscle tendon units that are being sort of uh, hyperactive and preventing certain types of, of movement in uh, these specific planes. And, you know, to emphasize, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, more in, in just a moment, but we do send, tend to see some characteristic patterns with these you know, external rotation of the shoulder being usually the motion that's limited the greatest. Yeah. Um, and then abduction also limited very significantly. And then some of these people, not quite as many, a bit more limitation in internal or medial rotation. But those uh, things can uh, those patterns of restriction oftentimes can be uh, indicative predominantly of, of muscle involvement, which, you know, we found very interestingly, and you referred to this too, the fact that we have a lot of these uh, people who were um, anesthetized and who had, you know, diagnoses of frozen, frozen shoulder, and then under anesthesia, you were able to move their shoulder around very easily. So there wasn't some binding contracture in that connective tissue, but something with the muscles that were anesthetized was doing that. That's right. This is, that's really, uh, it was Hallman 2015 who did a study. He only did five people, unfortunately. She actually only did five people. But when she put them under anesthesia, all five of those got quite a bit more movement. And they would all were scheduled for adhesive capsulitis surgery under the assumption yeah. that it was a structural or connective tissue contracture. And she has yeah. a cool video that I'll put in the references. And then that replicates or is along the lines with a a more informal study Robert Schleip, my friend and mentor, did a long time ago where he he tagged along with a knee surgeon and he did measures of people's shoulder motion under awake and then under anesthesia. And he found that two out of the three people he checked got considerably more motion under anesthesia. One of them didn't. So there is a certain, mm -hmm. you can we can say that maybe all, maybe at least some for sure, of these uh, shoulder restrictions have a non non muscular contraction component. Sorry, have a muscular contraction component because when you go to sleep, your muscles yeah. relax. So if your muscles are relaxed yeah. and it gets better, it wasn't the connective tissue that was holding it passively stiff. Yeah, which makes us wonder. Maybe there's a role for anesthesia in the assessment or evaluation process too. Can we just well, like? Put people to sleep and see if their shoulders will move there as a distinguishing distinguishing characteristic. But yeah, that, that's uh, a, we can try that. Mm -hmm. Put them to the, or uh, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of things. And then the other f interesting factor is that again, this is an opinion just put out there. I haven't found a really hard reference about it, but about they say about half of adhesive capsulitis shoulders, sorry, adhesive capsulitis surgeries show actual tissue pathology. There's visual pathology only in about half of those. So a lot of people, they, yeah. they've narrowed them down. They think you're a candidate for surgery based on everything we know, and then they do the surgery, and there's nothing visually uh, pathological inside the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why it is helpful and valuable if we can find some ways to try to make some distinctions between these structural versus functional 
facets of it because, I mean, you don't want to send somebody in for surgical um, in, you know, uh, interventions for a capsular adhesion when it's primarily a neuromuscular thing that's going on there that's going to be uh, possibly addressed by, could be addressed through some other conservative measures that wouldn't be as invasive as a surgical procedure. So, okay, so we don't um, want to send someone for yeah. surgery if it's not structural. Are there other yeah. reasons or other ways that that information is useful to us? Why else would that be important, that distinction? I think it's uh, uh, helpful in that if we have some idea if this is mostly a connective tissue involvement versus a neuromuscular involvement or vice versa, then our treatment strategies might focus more on the things that we uh, have a sense might be more neurologically oriented. We might focus on a lot more um, movement-oriented things that we feel like can really enhance or encourage uh, neuromuscular relaxation through those areas, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to you know do some things that we have a sense might be forcibly able to um, you know elongate or make the connective tissue a little bit more pliable. Although again, there's some really uh, interesting research that's saying there's uh, not uh, very much supportive evidence for the capability of stretching contractures themselves. Yes. Right. So. Um, those are, you know, some some challenges and dilemmas, but I do still think it's it's valuable and helpful if we're able to identify those things to some degree. I I'm on the fence about that, or let's say I'm not even on the fence. I'm on both sides of that fence because mm -hmm. I find it really it's really interesting, and my training and my practice for these decades has been, yeah, if it's if it's structural, that's going to make me think one way about it. And if it's functional, I'm going to think another way about it, even work in different ways. So in that sense, I think there probably is an important role for that distinction. It, it informs the way I work with someone. Yeah. Now, on the other side of the fence, I think, uh, does it really matter to me as a hands-on practitioner? Because I'm still going to try something. I'm still going to get a working hypothesis, try it. And if it seems satisfying and seems to be getting good results, I'm going to continue it. And if it's not, I'm going to change it. And yeah. I and I don't actually, I don't think it's useful for me to start with the assumption it's not going to change, which is sometimes goes along with the structural assumption. If it's a structural mm -hmm. problem, we the, the plausible and normal, you know, conventional thinking would be, we aren't, we're not going to change that. There's not really good evidence that manual therapy changes connective tissue in a permanent way, mm -hmm. uh, except, yeah. in, except in certain cases, which probably don't apply here. And we can think, well, we can have a lot of effect on neurological inhibition. We can relax muscles. We can increase uh, stretch tolerance. We can increase the safety. So maybe the functional ones are more our uh, bailiwick, you could think. But I don't go there. I don't think, uh, I think we can help both of them. And even, even some of the tests, like uh, if you get warmed up, it's said, if you get warmed up with exercise and your shoulder is more mobile, that points to a functional restriction. Some people say, I don't know about that because connective tissues do get more pliable when they're warmed up, too, even structurally. So I think mm -hmm. it's really hard to tease these apart. It's really hard to tease them apart. And so, as, a, as a practitioner, I almost I, it's great to make a distinction so I know how to think about it. But again, I'm going to work it and see if it helps. And if that helps, I'm going to continue yeah. that. If it doesn't help, I'm do something different. So let me sort of press into that just a little bit more here. So yes. how would you um, warm up connective tissues of the glenohumeral joint in terms of creating a thermal change that might make that tissue more pliable? Okay, yeah, I'm not, 
I'm not someone who uses thermal approaches in my treatment. So I wasn't saying, yeah, I would do that as a diagnostic. I would, I would find out if somebody, when they're exercising, when they've warmed up their whole body, let's say, has mm-hmm. more range of motion. But honestly, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm not spending a lot of time trying to tease those apart. I'll put them on the table and see if, yeah. I, if, the, if a very gentle, supportive approach gets results, then I think, okay, I probably haven't used a mechanical force yet that's caused any sort of tissue change if that's even possible. What I've done is I've probably de-threatened movement in a way that they can move more. Great. That's yeah. really useful. And you know, no, no, you I go was ahead. thinking also in terms of um, just in terms of the the treatment approaches. For example, mm-hmm. um, if we had sort of clarified that something might be a bit more neurological than structural then maybe some of our treatment strategies that might be trying to, I hesitate to say the phrase, but maybe fool the nervous system a little bit into increasing range of motion. Like, you know, gentle eccentric loading where the person is thinking about pushing in the opposite direction, but they're actually lengthening and going in the direction (laughs) of the the barrier. You know, might those things be more helpful in a situation like that? Well... If they were more helpful, then that would I would go the other way. I would try them and see if they were more helpful. If they were more helpful, I think, okay, that was good. There probably was a yeah. neurological mm-hmm. component. That like the, the treatment yeah. becomes the the test. That supports my hypothesis. I yeah. like I yeah. like the so, fool the nervous system thing though, because what's what we've done, let's say in an inhibited motion that you uh, have someone press into, is like, oh, we fooled you into thinking you're safe. Guess what? You mm-hmm. are. Right. That's right. Yeah. We, yeah. We actually yeah. we we de-threaten that direction by having someone play with it, either with contraction or even supporting into it, passive or active, and we're reminding mm-hmm. the nervous system that maybe you don't hurt as much as you thought, and especially toward yeah. the later stages, that recovery stage or after it's become habituated, that is so useful. Just that yeah. reset of the protective habits. Yeah. I want to also just uh, ask you a question too about treatment approaches in here um, that's related to both these things. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about some treatment things later on, but as we're we're talking about this right here, it it came to mind. One of the things that I have seen so frequently with a lot of clients who have this condition uh, is this uh, sort of defeatist, uh, catastrophizing kind of mindset about like, I'm never going to get better. Like, um, this is going to be going on for a long period of time. It's very easy for people to kind of get sucked into this. Yes. like lack of progress kind of thing. So um, is this one of those things, um, I I certainly think that there's value in anything that we can do that can show even the smallest incremental improvements being really valuable for therapeutic progress by showing people, hey, you couldn't do this last week and now you can. I mean, um, this is even one of those instances where I think like even something like measuring range of motion with a goniometer might have some really value here. And like, it's like, look, we have a numerical proof of greater motion this week than we had last week. That's so important. Like your numerical movement range or less pain. The fact Mm -hmm. that I can change your pain is a hopeful sign. It's not, your pain isn't permanent. And then, yeah, you're right. right. There is, there is uh, well, that psychological profiling study showed a yeah. prevalence of perfectionism. My shoulder has to be perfect for it to be okay. Low levels of novelty mm-hmm. seeking. I better not try that. High levels of harm yeah. avoidance. Uh-oh, don't do that. You know, that's, that might be built into our, uh, our, the complex of causative or correlating factors that are part of this condition. So, yeah, I yeah. Think anything I can do to begin to soften the edges of those reactions... 
whether they're inflammatory reactions or guarding reactions or assumptions, narratives, anything I can do to soften those can help. And usually it is yeah. supportive more yeah. than challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are important things, I think, with any of our treatment approaches to to really to keep in mind as, as we're trying to find the best, most effective results in working with this, because it can be certainly so challenging to find those those effective strategies, regardless of structural versus functional, whichever it is. Is it a good time to say a little more about how you start those out? Some of the methods or tests you would do to start to make that yeah, so let's guess on your side? Look at at this kind of assessment wise, and we can also look at this in terms of some other things that will be um, helpful to maybe distinguish it from like some of the things that we were talking about in our last episode, like the subacromial pain syndrome or rotator cuff disorders and things like that. Mm-hmm. I do find it valuable to try to dive a little more deeply into the assessment process and seek patterns that might be indicative of one of these things going on versus the other. So First of all, as we mentioned, you know, if, if there's a way to try to, if you can look at this at all with decreasing the role of the nervous system and try to find if there is capsular involvement of, of a restriction, ver, restriction versus a neurological one, that is really helpful. But it can be really difficult to tease those apart sometimes if you don't have the capability to do something that will turn the nervous system off, like anesthesia or something like that. I mean, there's always... Uh, you know, have your client drink excessive amounts of alcohol before they come into your treatment and do the evaluation and see if that's impairing the motor function. Oh, you're talking um, about home experimentation with anesthesia, right? <laughs> that's right. Something like that. That's right. Um, probably not advised. But um, one of the other things that I would encourage in terms of some distinctions, certainly between this and some of the other, like subacromial pain syndromes, is look for those patterns that would indicate Usually with the subacromial pain syndrome and rotator cuff involvement, you've got the primary nociceptive driver in that instance is contractile tissues, being the muscle tendon unit. So if you, for example, try to perform a resisted uh, abduction movement with no motion occurring at the joint, and that is painful, especially up in the region of the anterior and or lateral shoulder region, that would tend to be more indicative of something like a subacromial pain complaint than would be uh, a frozen shoulder, which is generally going to be painful during active or passive movement, but not painful during the resisted movements of abduction or flexion of the shoulder because you're not moving the capsule and not moving the restricted tissue. So when you do those resistive tests in a static isometric position, that would be a a way to help distinguish between the more uh, uh, muscle tendon unit oriented subacromial pain and and that of, of something in frozen shoulder. Okay, so if, it, if you do a resisted isometric contraction and it hurts, go listen to the last episode. And if that isometric right. contraction <laughs> doesn't reproduce the pain, you're in the right episode yeah. here. Is that Keep right? Keep listening, yes. That's right. right. Yeah, there we go, something like that, yeah. So another, you know, another thing, you mentioned this earlier in our discussion too, that um, there's different portions of the capsule that may be involved. Some of those patterns have been described in the literature with uh, particular types of restriction, but as you noted they're not always entirely consistent, but I, I do think it's still at least helpful to understand a little bit about why you might see some of those patterns. For So, for example, when the anterior or superior part of the capsule is involved, um, the descriptions usually are you see the greatest range of motion in external rotation of the shoulder with it in a neutral position. 
if it's the underside of the capsule where that axillary pouch is that we formerly thought was getting stuck to itself, the underside of the capsule at that point usually is more problematic when you try to externally rotate the shoulder from an abducted position. So this would be the position that you'd use if you were trying to reach up behind yourself and scratch the back of your head, for example. So with the shoulder being in abduction and external rotation simultaneously. And then the the uh, sort of third pattern was if there seemed to be more capsular restriction on the posterior aspect of the capsule, that was more likely to show uh, involvement uh, with limitations in medial or internal rotation of the shoulder. Mm -hmm. So helpful, I think, to look at some of those things, but not to put all your eggs in that basket of really trying to narrow down and say, oh, we can, we can know for certain this is where the capsular restriction is if that pattern happens to be there, because there are some other things that can be factors there. Well, I know I made a case for why I don't tend to start with a lot of tests myself, but use the treatment as a testing. But what you just described mm -hmm. there is using specific motions to or checking specific motions and combinations of motions to identify what might be involved. I think that's really useful. Yeah. And I think I would use that, again, to form my working hypothesis as to where to start. Because I'm not just saying nothing matters. Let's just try the shotgun and see what works. That's part of the skill that comes with doing this again and again, and maybe with studying something as specific as you're offering us, when you can really dial it down, that makes you really intelligent and really efficient about where you can begin your, at least your hypothesis and yeah, your work. I think that's true. And the other thing, um, for me, one of the reasons I like doing this in advance uh, with a bit more detail is that it gives me some understanding of what motions I need to really watch for when I try to move my client around on the treatment table or be, you know try to get ready to do some positioning things. To, to be very cautious and know, oh, this is a motion that I know they've had some problems with, so I'm going to be really careful here. And I'm also going to let them know I'm being really careful here and I'm really going to watch this and make sure we don't go into the, the place that's that's uncomfortable for you. So um, but that's those important. are the things that I think are really helpful. Yeah. And how do you, so how do you reconcile that with your, the statement you've made before about special tests not necessarily being so special? That's like, uh, I listened to Jeremy Lewis talking about this recently. He says it's it's really hard to be accurate in terms of reliability for these tests, in terms of identifying mm -hmm. the specific structure. And I know you you know that and you agree with that. But he says yeah. that the test can be really helpful to identify a painful movement or a range. I mean, we're we're checking for pain. He says more than saying being definitive about identifying the structure involved. How do you reconcile that for yourself? Well, for me, the thing is. Um, again, I think people tend to use a lot of these special tests in a bit more isolation. And it's interesting when I hear a lot of people in the world of orthopedics, and this is across the board, orthopedists, PTs, athletic trainers, massage therapists, chiropractors, whoever, when they talk about the use of these special tests, they talk about them frequently as isolated evaluation tools and evaluation methods without talking about first going through and identifying particular patterns of restriction that would point to one particular or one or two particular tissues being your major suspects. It's almost like they jump through that part and then go immediately to just performing some of these special tests because it's quicker to do that. But I think you miss important information that you're building a case. You know, it's whole like a detective process. You're trying to gather clues and build a case and like, is there enough evidence to point us in this direction? And one or two special tests alone don't provide the sufficient evidence in the absence of looking at some of those patterns like I was talking about before of what happens during 
active abduction versus passive abduction versus active and passive versus resisted uh, external rotation, those types of things. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's all about the patterns and are you building up enough evidence to indicate um, one particular type of thing being more suspect than another. Okay, so you, I like the suspect piece because what you're saying is that you're using the test to form a hypothesis, not a diagnosis, say. You're going to identify yeah. in your mind a structure, but knowing that, that that structure may or may not be the structural part as much as yeah. the nociceptive or the sensation or the perceptive part of what's involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are there any other tests you'd so. want to mention or assessment factors? But, well, you know, uh, one of the most common things that's used a lot for evaluating this is something called the Apley scratch test, where basically you're you're just trying to, you know, put your hands in a position to either scratch your upper back or lower back region. And um, that tends to, you know, test, for example, when your hand is trying to scratch your upper back, you're looking at abduction and external rotation range of motion in one shoulder and the lower shoulder when you're trying to scratch your lower back is adduction, adduction, and internal rotation on that shoulder. And then you switch them, go to the other side and compare them and just see, is there a significant difference in range of motion or is somebody unable to do those things because it's just too darn painful to do it? So um, it's a kind of quick and easy range of motion evaluation that can give you some important um, you know, information about what's going on there. But the thing that I also find interesting is that you know, in teaching this in a classroom, I would often go through these procedures with people and we've got lots of people in there with non-symptomatic shoulders and they do these aptly scratch tests and find very significant differences between sides, like you mentioned earlier, the dominant versus non-dominant side in, in terms of motion? Uh, range of motion. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so does that necessarily mean there's a pathology there? Mm, not necessarily, but we already have in a healthy individual significant differences between range of motion on those sides. So you got to be careful about how much weight you put on those procedures as telling you something when in essence they may just be reflecting a pretty close to normal situation that we see a lot of times anyway. Nice, nice. And then for myself more and more, I think I'm, I'm thinking about pain as its own thing so that I'll do those tests, those similar tests, but I'm looking not for necessarily where the motion restriction is, but where the pain provocation is. And then I well, yeah. will think about yeah. going to work with that sensitivity or that guarding or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm coupling that from uh, the motion restriction because it may or may not be related. Sometimes you get things less sensitive by getting them more mobile, but not always. Mm. And sometimes things are yeah. you know, sensitive without being immobile. Yeah, right. So how, um, with those things in mind, how would we work with this? What's What are our, our uh, strategies? We mentioned a few things already. What kind of things also do you like to focus on here? Well, I'll put some stuff in the handout as usual. And I know you put some really rich text about tests and things in our last handout. Uh, anything you want to say here about this handout? Is, it, is some of last handout stuff apply to this, this uh, yeah, topic absolutely. as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll, we'll try to do a similar thing here of put some, some clarifying characteristics that would be helpful in identifying this particular problem and yeah. discriminating between this and some of the other common shoulder complaints that we might run into as well. So those would be some, okay, some things that we'll try to, to make sure we include in there. Great, because I want to say that a lot of the techniques I showed in the last episode's handouts are also ones I would use for this situation. And then, I'll again, I'll put in yeah. some specified uh, ones I might use for uh, something I suspect is in the realm of a 
uh, inflammatory reaction or a uh, frozen shoulder kind of thing. And then I'm also going to put in a chapter on the shoulder, on the glenohumeral joint rather, from the Advanced Myofascial Techniques Volume 1. I'm going to put that in the handout too, which again covers one of the movement directions that I think is the most helpful, and that's the inferior glide or inferior translation of the humerus on the glenohumeral fossa. So that's one that I want to make sure is desensitized and mobile if I can. That seems to help so many people. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was so sure of myself, Whitney, probably the first 10 years of my practice, that I was um, I was one of those guys that I can fix 99% of frozen shoulders. I really thought that. Uh -huh. And maybe my track yeah. record was really that good until I practiced, probably what happened is I practiced long enough and saw enough clients to start to run into the ones that I could make better, but then the, the improvement didn't necessarily last. And then I really yeah. had to go hit the books and do the homework and realize, okay, there's a lot more to it than just, say, my, my, the bag of tricks that I developed and learned in my first 10 years. And so yeah. much of it becomes, I'll go through it now in terms of phase. Like in, if I suspect someone's in that inflammatory phase, that first phase, the quote, freezing phase, then I'm going to do it. That's, that's again where it will flare up easily or where the pain could linger once it's provoked. Then I want to do very careful experiments around how much movement is okay. My initial, once I've made that connection with the client and help them settle, that might be a lot by itself. But even once we got that, then I'll do very careful experiments to see exactly where is the painful range or where is the painful movement. And then how much support does it need? How much challenge does it need? And I mm -hmm. will give the homework of tell me how this was later. Keep track of it. Make some notes so you can come back next time and tell me. Did it get better and stay better? Was it better and then flare up later? Because we're going to learn from that. And that's really what I need to know is like, how do I need to dose and pace the work I'm doing? But my goal is really yeah. there in that first phase, that inflammatory phase or pain relief. Education, meaning I'm helping them start to think about this as a process more than a fix. Something that they need to, this is a process of caring for your shoulder, not fixing your shoulder. Especially if they've been at it for a while already. You know, so if they've tried a whole bunch of stuff and they often come to see me as a later stage practitioner, which is often the case, then it's like, okay, so maybe, maybe then it's a process of getting to know what your shoulder is comfortable with and can do and finding ways to give it that more than getting your shoulder mm -hmm. to cooperate with what you'd like it to do. So that sort of reframing yeah. and re-education, yeah. that's the first phase, the groundwork. Mm -hmm. The next phase, the middle phase or the quote frozen phase where it's, it's more seems to be more about immobility than pain per se, although pain can still be there. I'm still doing pain relief, but I'm doing more reassurance. I'm, I'm continuing the gentle mobilization. I've learned how much we can challenge, how much we should support. And I'm mostly fostering patience in that time because uh, a good number of people do get better, even though, like we said, not everyone does. But a good number of people do get better after a certain period of time, uh, no matter what they do or don't do. So a lot of it is just like, how can we live with it in this phase? How can you be comfortable? How can you adapt to what's happening here? And letting the pain relief that I can often provide in that session be valuable in and of itself. Again, that's more of that reframing yeah. away from let's fix it so it doesn't hurt anymore to saying, okay, let's find out about it. Let's find a ways to care for it. Find out what you can do and I can do to help you be with this issue. Yeah. I want to also draw attention for just a moment back to something that you were saying at, at the outset here of our treatment yeah. discussion of 
when you were thinking that you were making all of these frozen shoulder complaints resolve uh, right. early on in, in your treatment process, there's also the tendency for us to um, sort of, I don't know, cross over our understanding of what's happening in some of these instances and, and maybe develop some uh, overly optimistic ideas about our therapeutic effectiveness because, for example, we might have had people with a diagnosis of frozen shoulder yes. who got better really quickly. And I've seen this a lot in you know, demonstrations by practitioners who are advocating a particular treatment strategy and then, you know, bring somebody up to the front of the room who supposedly has frozen shoulder, yes. do some things with them, and all of a sudden, all they've got this miraculous great range of motion. Oh, yeah. And we've, you know, broken their adhesive capsulitis free. So uh, I think there's an important distinction to recognize that's in one quotes, really good quotes, illustration. Right? Yes, in air quotes okay. up there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's one really good distinction there of like, that's not a capsular adhesion um, in that instance. If you get that kind of immediate results with an individual, that's a neurological response that's happening. Um, that it, uh, that one is clearly a functional problem and not a structural capsular adhesion because we have, there is no mechanism that will miraculously cause capsules to uh, lengthen and loosen from any type of manual therapy approach. So that's that's another reason why you know it's helpful if we can make some of those distinctions so we can know like if we got those kind of results we're probably dealing with the functional neuromuscular one as well yes and um it's a i'm looking for us in myself as the practitioner i'm suspending judgment i don't even know yet and who knows i, I mean i i am that guy who can take someone up in front of the room and show an amazing improvement in maybe it is 90 plus percent of shoulders in that session. It's something pretty high. Yeah. Enough to support my cockiness around that. But the, <laughs> the question, you know, the question there is, does it persist? Not can I get the yeah. uh, results right there, because often I can, but how long does that persist? And then that's where I start to think about uh, maybe other mechanisms, but also like, okay, so this is, Never mind the mechanism for a second. This is an ongoing project more than a one-time fix. That's the big shift in my thinking and the one that I want to invite yeah. the client around. Yeah. Okay, so I, that third phase, the, my treatment thoughts in that third phase, if someone's had inflammatory phase, they've had the stiffening phase, and then it's starting to improve into the thawing phase, I want to support that with more mobility. I, maybe I'm starting to renew the experiments around challenging it a little bit. Maybe I can go mm -hmm. back and check and see what if we do challenge it a little bit more in terms of its range of motion? What if I think about mobility more than desensitizing and seeing how people respond? So it's time to recalibrate my approach, but then it's also helping the brain essentially recalibrate to the movement that's becoming possible. Because a lot of times people will yeah. have forgotten they can move comfortably and they're still acting as if they can't. The brain is still acting as if it hurts when they, their body suddenly realizes, actually, I got more range there than I thought I did. And so it's, yeah, it's encouraging right. people to be a little more novelty-seeking, to take a, maybe gentle risks, and then especially to learn how to back off from that when inevitably someone goes too far with that process and gets too excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so. throughout, yeah, throughout that process, I'm thinking about my CALMS acronym, the inflammatory acronym that we use in our inflammation training. Where the C of CALMS is really the context we're working in because there's so much about our conversation and our relationship and the person, fact that this person's coming to me, et cetera, et cetera, that is part of the results we're going to get with an inflammatory situation. 
the A being the autonomic responses. I'm helping them calm down their reactivity, their autonomic fight or flight reactivity around the pain and problems they're having. The liquids, the L in the columns is the liquids. I'm helping perfusion and circulation. No matter what phase it in, that's going to be helpful. I'm not, you know, pumping them around, but I'm thinking in my mind, okay, so how could the perfusion of their interstitial fluids, their lymphatic system, their blood, etc., be part of what I'm providing or fostering or encouraging? And then the M being the movement safety. How can I help someone find movements that are more safe, even if they're micro-movements in some phases? I don't, I should say, though, it calms with an S on the end. I'm not typically doing the S for, uh, if, if I really suspect an adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder, the S is the, the uh, stimulate inflammation. That's where we'll really challenge it sometimes in certain cases with certain clients, certain conditions. Frozen shoulder is probably not one of those where I won't necessarily try to stimulate inflammatory response through really pushing it to see if that will resolve the inflammation. That'll tend to flare things yeah. up pretty predictably. And I think that's also reflected a lot in the traditional uh, physical therapy approaches for dealing with this, that when uh, individuals try to try more aggressive exercise routines, it often flares the problem up more significantly than helping it. So uh, that would tend to, to support that, that idea as well. And so much of what I'm helping people with is the pacing, you know, helping to learn how to pace mm -hmm. what they do. Yeah. Okay. So. Any key points? We should repeat here and wrap up. What do you think? Yeah, so, yeah, there's um, a couple of, of things that I think that we sort of highlighted as, as key points here that we would want um, to look at. So you had mentioned that just because some shoulders have a limited range of motion or are stiff in certain planes mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean the individual has frozen shoulder. And that's certainly, I would mm -hmm. emphasize again, the crucial importance for um, you know, trying to go through a comprehensive evaluation process and, and have a good idea what's going on there. So that doesn't necessarily mean that that is a frozen shoulder, especially if it's not following a characteristic pattern that we would uh, likely see with, with that. So, um, yep, yeah. nice. What else you got? Yeah. So. Well, uh, that's, it's that last point I made. I'll just repeat it. Be aware of the potential for flaring it up or backlash if you get too yeah. uh, ambitious or aggressive, even if it seems to be okay in the moment. You've you got to learn yeah. how your clients are responding and keep that in mind as yeah. you're working as well. Yeah. And uh, you had mentioned, too, just trying some things out and seeing what happens, both in, in terms of range of motion capabilities, both in the assessment and evaluation process yep. and also in the treatment process, kind of just seeing where we can try to restore some functional movement in even very, very small little increments as much as possible. And, you know, I often encourage people to do this in ways that don't load those tissues to it at home, because this is a real important part of this, is trying to reinforce ideas in home. And, and uh, you know, there's things like the, the doorway stretch where you place your your um, elbow in, in 90 degrees of flexion and put your hand straight out in front of you against the edge of a door frame and just try to turn your body right. a little bit. So you're not thinking about turning your shoulder, just turning your body and that moves your shoulder a little bit and just doing those kinds of things repeatedly, um, just a little bit at a time each day is, is really helpful for, especially those neurological problems where you're sort of teasing the idea of moving farther into that barrier and, and telling your body it's safe to move. Yeah, and a nice variation on that to, to grade that back is the corner 
stretch instead of a doorway just go into the corner facing the corner and put your wall your hands on the opposing walls and lean into that that can be a little less intense than the doorway stretch but the, the key there like you said Winnie is to really the grading the ability to uh, pace what you're doing and learn from how aggressive you're being with yourself and back it off if you need to yeah so that's absolutely. yeah that's that's the, that's the patience the experimental approach the patience of caring for it rather than fixing it and then I got one more. Should I should I share mine? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Ben. And that's the pain relief, even if it's temporary, is really often possible. And it's really valid as a benefit, even if it's temporary, even if it doesn't mm. last. Because, again, that can shift someone's thinking about what's going on. And any relief from an ongoing situation is a godsend. And it helps people reevaluate their expectations and what they're demanding of themselves just to give them experience of some relief and pain and that being itself being part of the care that we can give something like a frozen shoulder. And I think this taps into what we were saying earlier too about just small, uh, small wins. You know, what you're talking about there is like finding ways to give people small um, sensations of, of progress, making some headway. Those are, are always particularly valuable in this condition because it can seem so long and so debilitating. You know, we're talking about a condition that frequently goes on for 18 months or two years in many cases. So those little bits of improvement give the person encouragement to keep working and keep trying things. That's so important. That's great. Well, we probably ready for our closing sponsor. I think so. I think we kind of wrapped that up pretty thoroughly there. So uh, what have we got here closing us out today? Uh, uh, Books of Discovery is our closing sponsor. They've been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. And Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. And they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast and are proud to support our work knowing that we share the mission to bring massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. So check out the collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources they have for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. So thanks again to all our sponsors. If you will, stop by our sites for the handout that Till mentioned earlier, show notes, transcripts, and any extras. You can find that over on our sites. Um, For me, that's over at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can people find that from your site? I'm at advancedtrainings.com, advancedtrainings.com. And we'll be sure to put the link to the uh, shoulder jam there as well. Re- highly recommend you come check that out with Whitney, me, and a bunch of other teachers. If there's any questions or things you want to hear us talk about in our podcast, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. I'm at my name, Till Luca. Whitney, where do people find you on social media? They can also find me on social under my name, Whitney Lowe. Um, and we would also encourage you follow along with us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you happen to be listening, Stitcher, whatever is your podcast um, app of choice. And uh, as, of course, usual, if you are unable to find us in any of those locations, you can always find a railroad track that runs from north to south across Saskatchewan and put your ear to the track and listen to us there. (laughs) So 
Thanks again for another interesting episode. Till great to talk with you about this, and we will see you again in two weeks. Likewise, I enjoyed it, learned a lot, and uh, always a pleasure. See you again in two weeks, Whitney. Okie doke.